whole host of exporters from the United States and elsewhere that rely on the ability to move data to provide services across the world. That includes some companies you might think about, like social media firms, but it also includes payment processors, logistics companies, physical manufacturers who are embedding digital services within their goods. There's such a strong impact that the U.S. ITC has estimated that if we were to be able to eliminate digital trade restrictions like data localization barriers, it would increase U.S. GDP by as much as $41 billion. Welcome to the Mercatus Center Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. International trade has been in the news a lot lately, particularly given the proposed introduction of new tariffs on steel and aluminum imports. But today's topic has less to do with physical goods being shipped between countries. We're talking about data localization requirements as an emerging digital trade issue. We have a great panel here to explain exactly what data localization requirements are, why they matter, and how policymakers should approach the issue. First up, we're joined by Christine McDaniel, scholar here at Mercatus and an economist specializing in trade issues. Thank you for joining us, Christine. Thank you. Next, we have Joshua Meltzer, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, where he co-leads the Digital Economy and Trade Project. Josh, thanks for coming all the way out to Arlington. Pleasure to be here. And rounding out the cast, we have Brian Larkin, the Internet Association's Director for Cloud Policy and Philadelphia native, though as I promised him earlier, I'll try not to hold that against him. (laughs) Thanks for being here, Brian. Thank you for having me. Go Eagles. (laughs) (laughs) So I just want to start by making sure we're all on the same page, our listeners are on the same page. I mentioned that it was an emerging issue. Can someone just explain to me what data localization requirements are? It's probably worth clarifying that there are a variety of data localization requirements, and this is often a catch-all phrase for various types of measures that countries are implementing globally. So on the one extreme, it can be a requirement that all data is being held in country and it's not allowed to flow across borders at all. Another form of data localization is when you might require to have a copy um, in country, but you can still move other data offshore. And a very common form of data localization is when lots of requirements are placed around the ability to move data across borders. So a very common example there is, for example, in the in the European context, uh, when it comes to personal data, for instance, uh, you're not allowed to move personal data outside of the EU to a third country, either in the absence of a finding of adequacy, namely that the third country has got privacy protection, which the Commission deems to be sort of essentially equivalent to the EU privacy standards, or under various other mechanisms, but essentially requires steps to be followed in order for data to flow. So you get a host of these requirements that is in their totality sort of limit and have frictions on the ability for the free flow of data across borders. And there's a very strong trade connection to this. There's a whole host of exporters from the United States and elsewhere that rely on the ability to move data to provide services across the world. That includes some companies you might think about, like social media firms, but it also includes payment processors, logistics companies, physical manufacturers who are embedding digital services within their goods. There's such a strong impact that the U.S. ITC has estimated that if we were to be able to eliminate digital trade restrictions like data localization barriers, it would increase U.S. GDP by as much as $41 billion. Wow. In the past, we've all sort of taken this view of the internet as sort of this borderless notion of the internet, right? But now a lot of countries and a lot of people are starting to worry about, you know, privacy and and security, which are, you know, these are real legitimate personal privacy issues. And then, then there are countries that are trying to find ways to fuel innovation or attract foreign direct investment. And they think that, so trying to use these data localization requirements to do that, and, and sometimes it works, sometimes it has unintended consequences. Is it a sort of a natural progression of trade policy issues now, you know, as data has become so valuable 
that you know, countries see data as something that they should really try to keep inside their borders or control the flow of? Or is it just sort of a natural progression of, you know, well, yesterday it was goods and today it's data. So all the same kind of, you know, real economic issues, but now just applied to sort of the, you know, what's out there in the cloud. You know, I think you hit on a really important point, which is that governments pursue data localization policies for a very wide variety of reasons. You know, sometimes it's to control flows of information within their markets. Sometimes it is for protectionist reasons. Other times it's because they perceive a legitimate public policy interest or are hearing from domestic stakeholders about the kind of need for data localization, which is basically, in my view, always flawed policy. But essentially, there are a wide variety of reasons. What do you think, Josh? I think that's right. I think both of you pick up on the right points in that we sort of, at some level, have been working under a fairly free flow of information environment. And increasingly, we're seeing the intervention by governments for a whole variety of reasons into the free flow of data. So in a sense, it's somewhat the reverse of a traditional trade situation where you're trying to actually dismantle barriers. And here, we're trying to prevent too many of them going up. But there is the difficult, I think, question of sometimes you know, these barriers are going to be driven by, you know, what seem to be legitimate policy concerns, for instance, around privacy or maybe around national security, for instance, and other times it's going to be for more obviously protectionist reasons. Though the deeper question, I think, Brian, which you also raised is this notion of, you know, it's flawed policy, which is that there still, I think, is a very open question around even if you have a legitimate policy purpose, are you actually achieving it most effectively by requiring data localization? And I think that there's a lot of work going on at the moment which suggests that, in fact, you are going to be better off, for instance, on economic or trade grounds, even on national security grounds, if you actually minimise and in some cases do not pursue data localization and instead pursue other policy alternatives. We can go into that in more detail. I think that's absolutely right. One thing that's often lost in this debate is that when a government you know, imposes a forced data localization mandate, it quite often cuts off its entire domestic economy from the most innovative, cutting-edge services out there that help improve productivity and drive benefits across the economy. For example, I'm thinking of cloud computing services, which as of 2014, one out of every five companies in OECD member countries employed. Mm-hmm. It's probably grown since then. There was a study a few years ago that found that of all the countries that were considering or imposing data localization mandates, if those had gone through, it would increase the cost for local companies to use services like that by 30 to 60 percent, if there are alternatives at all in the domestic market. Um, So there's a very broad kind of ripple effect in terms of damage to local economies here. What does that look like for me just as a consumer? So let's say that I do business with some company that for whatever reason has to deal with data localization requirements. Do I see that or does that kind of all happen behind the scenes? I think it can be very visible. Russia is a country that enacted a data localization policy in the last few years. So I'll just use the example of LinkedIn which we all know is a service we use to find new jobs, to make professional connections. It's something that I think really adds value in all of our professional lives. But overnight, that was turned off in Russia. There were 6 million people who no longer had the ability to use that to do those things. So it's often seen as a behind-the-scenes issue, but it can have very real impacts for real people. On the cost side of it as well, we've got the, you know, a lot of what is going to be economically important here is going to be also on the business to business side. And I mean, you know, UNCTAD has done estimates most recently, um, and these are consistent with sort of what's come out in the past, which sort of shows that, you know, 80, 90% of the benefits of, you know, broadly the internet and data flows really on the business to business side, you know, and in many respects, you know, the opportunities, I mean, to understand the cost, you know, the, the opportunities, particularly, say, for instance, when you pick up cloud computing, 
computing, which is a really important development here. And you increasingly see, as Brian was saying, you know, the growth of cloud computing. You know, f- most cross-border data flows are going through cloud data centers now. And the opportunities it presents, particularly for small businesses, you know, to essentially get access to the type of computing power, whether it's in terms of software um, or infrastructure, is you know largely now you know similar to what large companies have, and you know this is opportunity is almost a bit like what mobile telecommunications revolution was, you know, for, for small businesses, you know, decades ago, and continues to be, and. One of the implications of data localization, again, depending on you know what we're talking about and how it gets implemented, is that you you essentially raise the cost of these very important business inputs for businesses, and large businesses will be able to you know absorb that and work around it. But for small businesses that are getting access to these crucial business inputs, you know the costs are potentially very significant. And this is not just an IT sector issue anymore. So you know these are businesses across the economy who are accessing these digital inputs. You know economies broadly are going digital. So you know small manufacturers, services industries, even agriculture, mining and the like, are all using these technologies. So, you know, the, the, the implications of these policies often directed at very specific sort of policy goals often have very broad economic implications. So I was wrong from the start when I said this is less about actual goods moving across borders. This impacts the things we typically think of as traditional trade as well, it sounds like. Absolutely. McKinsey did a study and found that about three quarters of the economic value added by data flows in the internet accrues to traditional industries not the typical sort of tech startup situation. I I always like to put this in an example that, you know, people on the street could get. So I think of Sephora, you know, Sephora, the store of beauty products. And, you know, they're all over the world. And they have, they keep a lot of information on their clientele all over the world, right? And they know your skin type. They know, you know, what you like to buy in every season, what you like to buy for people's gifts. So the question is then, when Sephora has your information, you know, and, and then they want to do business in China, are they going to bring that information to China? Or when they go to China, will the Chinese government force them to keep all that information that they're going to be gaining on their new Chinese clients and customers to keep that in China? So I think it's helpful to, to kind of think about our sort of our traditional stores as well as the more cloud logistics service providers. But to pick up on Josh's point of the policy objectives, I wanted to talk to you guys about this. You know, we hear about policy objectives that countries have when they start to promote and pass these new laws. You know, China's cybersecurity regulations, India's national data sharing and accessibility policy, South Korea's land survey acts, the EU, Australia, Canada, even the US, we all have our own versions of rules and regulations around movement of data, storage of data. I think what we sort of see in a lot of situations is that many of these policies are being driven by multiple objectives. And you know, driven as what happens with regulation, you know, there's sometimes special interest driven. I think the, the importance of and the newness of this issue is a challenge for regulators. I think particularly for regulators who are traditionally in areas where they don't have to think about the cross-border nature of the regulation. So, for instance, if you're, um, you know, in the consumer, you know, safety environment or if you're in health or if you're in education, you know, the implications around the international aspects are often minimal. And But now because the data issue is so economy-wide, you know, the way you, reg- you regulate, they can have an in- international implication. I don't think these are understood and well thought through and what the costs might be. Another wrinkle to this, which I think we need to recognise, is that, you know, while this is an economy-wide issue, 
you know, a lot of these key digital services at the moment are being delivered by large US corporations. And that creates a political dynamic in third countries, which they are also grappling with, which is namely the idea that you know, they the, to improve the understanding that yes, this is a US sort of services export in many respects, but it's a crucial import that has economy wide benefits rather than seeing it as simply as you know providing better market access to a US company. And you know, this is sort of gets played then off against how do you build domestic sort of digital industries themselves? And so we end up in sort of forms of sort of what look like protectionism um, when you say, for instance, require data centres in a domestic country in the hope that you're going to stimulate a domestic cloud industry where what you're probably going to do is decrease security and increase costs and you're going to sort of try to build something domestically at a broader economic cost. So there's a lot of these issues intertwined which make it challenging and a lot of the work I think underway at the moment now is trying to help regulators sort through and work through a lot of these implications. I think that's spot on. Uh, This is an area that didn't necessarily exist 20 years ago and in some parts of the world hasn't existed until much more recently. So policymakers and regulators, I think, often find themselves reacting. And, you know, while the goal of, of wanting to have your own Silicon Valley is understandable, it's often a much more nuanced discussion in terms of kind of these underlying issues and the impact on traditional industries and SME enablement and things of that nature. I just want to circle back quickly, if we can, to one of those underlying issues that I think has come up a couple of times, and that's the security and the privacy aspects. I think a number of you have mentioned that. Does anybody want to kind of give me the version of the argument that says, which probably makes sense for a lot of people, that this stuff is sensitive, this is personal data, we need to be careful about where it is, both whether it's national security issues or whether it's just you know taking care of your own country's consumer privacy. I guess let me just have a go at that quickly because I think the broader sort of regulatory challenge is as follows, which is that if you're trying to achieve a domestic regulatory goal and, and you know, large quantities of data can be seamlessly moved across borders, you know there's this notion that achievement of that domestic regulatory goal can be undermined by that process. So the immediate incentive for regulators is to restrict cross-border data flows. And that's basically, for instance, what we see in the privacy context where it's understandable from an EU perspective where they've got, you know, very stringent top-down privacy laws, which, you know, are based around essentially these notions as as a fundamental right and and it's written into the constitution. The ability then to transfer that data to a third jurisdiction, which the EU deems has lower levels of privacy protection, means that the initial response is, well, you can't do that unless under certain conditions. And and I think this is the sort of outcome which plays out across a whole range of regulatory agendas now. On the other hand, the US has taken a very different approach to privacy. Uh, And I think the argument in the US is that, you know, the privacy outcomes are just as good, if not better than in the EU, but it essentially relies on businesses to, you know, publish privacy policies and you know, comply with them with oversight from the um, FTC, and that provides a lot more flexibility for businesses to utilise data flows without sort of having a sort of stringent one-size-fits-all regulatory approach to how they manage data flows. And to some extent, you know, the US has obviously developed a very successful digital economy, and in part, some of these regulatory structures are seen as being key to having enabled that. But, you know, the US does not have a privacy protection explicitly in the constitution. The common law has developed that based on other constitutional principles. It's balanced against a very strong right to free speech. So you just get a different path dependency in the US in terms of the way privacy gets dealt with and balanced off against other rights. So you get to some very fundamental difference of normative questions around how different jurisdictions and countries sort of weigh and balance these objectives. That's right. I think, you know, the, the goal in terms of international privacy protection should be less about harmonization less about saying everyone has to do things in exactly the same way, and more about interoperability. 
recognizing that you know outcomes are the important thing. We might have different ways of achieving those goals based on our unique histories, our social and political values. But if we're achieving that outcome of strong privacy protection, as we do in the United States, then that's positive. And this also kind of hits on one of the bigger challenges related to both privacy, data flows, and the international digital economy more broadly, which is that we're still in a place where there's a, a fundamental lack of consensus among kind of global powers on the ideal model forward. You see some countries pursuing much more restrictive visions on privacy in other areas, other countries with a free market approach, and also put a whole slew of countries sort of in the middle. And that's why it's important for the U.S. and others to promote interoperability approaches and positive shared norms around things like e-commerce and data flows as they're trying to do. So that makes me think of, you know, the, the differences you point out, Brian, and different countries approaches differently. We're starting to see data localization requirements in as a sort of a mainstay in at least at the negotiating table and free trade agreement negotiations, right? So I, I've, I've wavered on this and I wanted to hear what you guys had to say about um, the, for example, the TPP language, the CPTPP language on data localization uh, requirements. And just in general, is that a good idea? Should they be in trade agreements? Uh, you, you look at the TPP, the CPTPP language, it's very general. It doesn't really commit um, countries to any anything per se, except the pr- general principles. Um, you know, is that far enough? Well, I do think they are important elements of trade agreements. Data flows have become foundational to all sorts of economic activity. And yet they're an area where there really aren't as clear-cut binding commitments as you would expect, given that importance. So I, I would say it's important. As I understand it, the CPTPP language on data flows mirrors the language that the U.S. had negotiated in TPP. That represented, up to that point, the most comprehensive, strong language on that issue. And in that context in particular, I thought it was extremely important because you know it bound together economies of very different sizes and levels of economic development in a strategically important region and put forward a really positive model at a time when, as I said, there are a number of countries pursuing visions, visions that we wouldn't agree with, and a number of countries looking to them. So I think the more we can put forward those alternative models and the more we get buy-in from other developing countries on those models – as was the case with TPP and CPTP, CPTPP. Yeah, say it fast. Exactly. The more positive it'll be. So on CPTPP, do you think that the language in CPTPP would be in alignment with China's cybersecurity laws? Or Josh, do you want to weigh in? Yeah. Before I answer that, here's the challenge because in many respects, the way the, the, way the CP, let's just call it the TPP, yeah. is... Which is um, Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, the right. Page, and, yeah. and now the CP being comprehensive and progressive, which is highly problematic considering that they want the US to join. Um, <laughs> but the way the TPP structured is essentially that there's a variety of comprehensive provisions, but the one on cross-border data flows is actually a firm commitment to the free flow of data across borders, but subject to exceptions. And actually on the cross-border data flow, there's actually a very specific bit in the actual same article in the TPP, which says essentially for any legitimate public policy reason, you can um, you know, res- place restrictions if they're necessary subject to making sure that they're you know, non-discriminatory and, and not a disguised restriction on international trade. So in many respects, reflecting the type of GATS, Shepo language that we're familiar with in Article 14. That's fine in, in terms of a setup, but what is going to happen is that underlying those rules is how um, countries and regulators are thinking about this at the moment. And the way they're thinking about this at the moment is that they've made a commitment to the free flow of data, but they've got actually you know, pretty substantial exceptions for restrictions. And unless regulators see cross-border data flows as something they should be as a matter of sort of first principle allowing 
then I would expect that you're going to see heavy reliance on the exceptions provision, uh, more, more so than we normally see, say, in, in, a, in a GAT or a GATS context. So really to make that bit of the provision sort of helpful is you also need to build you know, other countries' understanding about why it's actually important and beneficial for them. But the innovative part also to the TPP, which is – this is part of a paper that I'm co-authoring with Aditya Matu, uh, so I want to give him adequate credit here – is the notion that the TPP also includes commitments on each party to do a couple of things. One is actually to have in place privacy laws, which apply essentially to other TPP parties as well and to also have consumer protection laws, which also apply to all users of e-commerce. So essentially, there's a bit of a regulatory development and, and bargain embedded in the, in the TPP, which is that there are obligations on both the data exporters and the data importers. So the data exporters committed to allowing that to happen with scope for exceptions, and the data importers are also taking on a responsibility to actually have in place certain regulations um, around privacy and consumer protection, which essentially will provide some regulatory certainty to the data exporters that they're not just sort of going to lose sort of out in terms of undermining their domestic regulatory goals. Now, I think what a beginning of a framework which is actually potentially um, exportable and globalizable. Uh, but what's got to happen in that context, what's missing in the TPP environment is a better sense of what those standards for consumer protection and privacy might be. And that's where some of the other work going on on those standards matters. So for instance, the TPP is amongst APEC economies and there's an APEC privacy framework and cross-border privacy rules, which is trying to set a common standard around privacy. So you marry that with the actual TPP commitments and you actually start building a structure which provides sort of a common base for privacy protection and commitments on both sides of the bargain to actually allow, pri- oh, okay. allow cross-border data flows to move. That would restrain countries' tendencies or abilities to lean too heavily on that exception That's clause. right, exactly. So, you know, this sort of minimises the need for that to be an enormous carve-out and it creates an alternative pathway for providing that type of domestic, that's certainty for domestic regulators about what's going to happen to data once it leaves their country. And that APEC framework is a really important tool because it kind of gets back to the interoperability issues I had mentioned earlier. It doesn't explicitly say you must do this one thing in this one way, but targets outcomes and thereby enables free flows of data you know, within the kind of APEC economies that have signed up to it while ensuring strong privacy protections. The answer to this question, I think, has been embedded in this conversation. But as we kind of draw to a close here, one of the things that I want to do is just kind of get you guys to explicitly maybe offer some recommendations for our listeners. So imagine you're at a policymaker meeting, could be a congressional staffer, could be a regulatory staffer. Someone's about to walk into a TPP negotiation meeting on data localization. And they come to you and they say, Brian, Josh, Christine, what do I do? What's your response to them? Do you have, what's your policy recommendation? What advice would you give them? I'm assuming you're, you're from a perspective of, of a U.S. <laughs> negotiator. <laughs> well, I, that's actually a good point. We've talked a lot about the fact that different countries have different outcomes here. So we'll probably have a little bit of international audience. I'll let you all choose your audience here if you think there's another sure. another country of interest. So, I, I, you know, I think I think there's a couple of things here. One, one's in the, in the weeds and one's a bigger picture one. Uh, and the bigger picture one I want to pick up because we're sort of occasionally mentioned China. But, you know, we, we are seeing China potentially heading down a path in terms of the way it thinks about data, manages data and, and provides access to data, um, which is significantly different 
to really the way the US thinks about it and even the way the EU thinks about it. And so while there are certainly important divergences, say, for instance, between the US and the EU, particularly on the privacy issue, I think the divergences ultimately with China are much more significant. And so in this context, commitments around data flows, you know, avoiding forced data localizations, avoiding requiring giving up a source code as an investment requirement, all the type of stuff that's in the TPP is important, not only for the very specific economic reasons, but also, you know, we are in a phase at the moment, we're building norms and globalizing them around how data should move and be managed is particularly important. And so, you know, getting the US into agreements which have these type of commitments is particularly significant because obviously, you know, the US will continue to be a leader on this. So where this has been developed, whether, you know, it's rejoining the TPP or in the NAFTA context or in other future trade agreements, you know, this sort of matters in terms of that meta picture. The other element is, of course, I mean, certainly I think from a US perspective, but I think this is going to be increasingly true for really economies globally. And, you know, Brian, you made the excellent point about, you know, the TPP has got developed developing countries and they've all ultimately signed on to these provisions. And I think significantly, they've continued to sign on to them, even in the absence of the US, which really pushed them initially, which is that economies are all going digital. The um, opportunities are going to be there for developing developing countries. And that, you know, it's important to think about this as an economy-wide issue, as an enabling technology, and that with the right sort of parallel regulatory approaches in place, in addition to commitments to these rules, you know, potentially over the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, you can imagine a much more inclusive um, international economic system, and these will underpin that. I would say that this area is one where truly the rules of the road are being written as we're driving on it. And the most important thing policymakers can do is work with allies in international fora through bilateral and multilateral agreements to really promote those norms of openness. I think it's really encouraging that the United States and 69 other countries in the context of the WTO uh, agreed to explore some sort of positive statement on e-commerce. Um, we need to kind of continue those sorts of engagements really at all levels to promote those norms and candidly to promote an alternative to the models being advanced by China and some other economies, because there are a lot of countries still in the middle that haven't determined their approaches to this yet. Um, and they're looking, they're looking for models to the United States, to China, to others. And it's important that we're out there with a strong, cohesive vision that promotes those norms of openness. Just to pick up what, what Brian and Josh said, so I would tell them to focus on principled approach, the policy ob objectives, right? So security, privacy, market access, competition, and the least trade distorting approach. Stick to our principles that we've had, you know, all along, right? It now is just a different topic, but sticking to the same principles, you know, competition, least trade distortive, uh, market access. But then, of course, with security and privacy, I mean, every human is entitled to their privacy. Nations, you know, have security needs, what we're seeing right now in trade discussions, you know, using national security under Section 232 with steel and aluminum tariffs, is that really a national security argument? You could think of China, India, many other countries using a national security argument to do the same thing in data localization, a number of other issues. So I think a principled approach like countries have done for the last 80 years would be helpful here as well. Well, I think that should wrap us up for now. I want to thank our guests for helping unravel this issue and our listeners for tuning in. As I mentioned, this is an emerging issue. So let's give our listeners some ideas on where to go and what to read next. So Josh, where can they go online to find more of your work on trade and the digital economy? If you go to the Brookings website and we have a tab for experts and you look um, up my name, Joshua Meltzer, um, all my work is online there. 
And Brian, where's the best place for folks to go for the Internet Association's latest on this and related issues? I'd advise folks to check out internetassociation.org. We have a team page that has all of our emails listed. Uh, You can always feel free to reach out to me as well. I'm brian at internetassociation.org. And Christine, for our listeners who want to follow more of your research and commentary, where's the easiest place to find it? The Mercatus website. Sounds good. As always, I'm eager to hear from you, our listeners. So please feel free to email me your questions, comments, and especially complaints or episode ideas at crease at mercatus.gmu.edu or find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese. Thank you all.